Joshua chapter 4, I'm ready to get started. Uh, we're going to talk tonight. Am I on? Am I not on? My battery. What's that? Stay on. Stay on. Okay, I think it stayed on. Are you on back there? Make sure the connectors are in. Top and bottom. Do you guys appreciate Jonathan Dietz for doing all this for us? He comes, comes early every Wednesday night and puts all this stuff together. Am I? Are you getting it? All right, I got a thumbs up. First thumbs up I've gotten all day today. Although I did find a $20 bill in my jacket pocket today. I mean, you, man, you talk about the blessings of God. I didn't even know I had this, and it was... It was in my pocket. No, it's not yours, Kate. It was, it was mine. But it was in my coat pocket, okay? So. <laughs> Amen. Chapter 4. We're going to talk tonight uh, about what happened, as Doug was saying, after the crossing of the Jordan. And so we're going to begin in chapter 4, uh, beginning at verses 1 through 9. Let's go ahead and read those nine verses, and then we'll stop and make some comments. Chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's foot stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodged tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel." That this may be a sign among you uh, when your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it, it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded. And took up the twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Okay, let's stop. And, uh, and let's just notice a few things. First of all, this memorializing of the event took place after all of the people had crossed over. In other words, it was complete. What God had told them to do, they had done. You remember last week, we stopped our lesson literally as the priests were at the edge of the water. They were looking at this water that was in flood stage. It was outside of its banks. It was overflow. It was raging. 
And, and God told Joshua to tell these priests, you go in first. You know, one of the most difficult things of leadership is to try to get people to do something that they think you ought to be doing. Especially when you're, you, you know, you're a paid staff member. And, and so many churches fail to realize that they are supposed to be involved in ministry, not just the pastoral staff, not just the leadership. In fact, uh, it, it, Tammy was a little bit surprised to see me today because it's not that I don't go to the hospital, but it's just that I'm usually down the line when I go. But we couldn't get a hold of Al and Geraldine, who are all, of, we, we call them our first responders. When somebody goes into the hospital, Al and Geraldine are usually always the first ones there. I, I don't even usually have to tell them. They hear about it before I do. People don't even call me anymore. I didn't know Tammy was in the hospital for a whole week. And other people did know. And, and I'm not saying that I don't want to know and that I don't care. I'm just saying that that's really the way that the body of Christ should function is that people within the body of Christ say, this is something that I can do for the kingdom of God, and I'm going to do it. But anyway, we couldn't get a hold of Al and Geraldine, and so they weren't able to get up there. And I told, and Erlene had already called and prayed over the phone and that kind of thing, and I thought, I can't get anybody else, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run up there. Well, when I walked in, it's like, oh, my goodness. You know, the pastor's here. I must be worse than I thought I was. Yeah, I told you about Kevin Morris here a few weeks ago when he had the diverticulitis. I went, and I, I had either just come from a funeral or was going to a funeral, and I had my black suit on, white shirt, tie, and all that kind of thing, and I come walking in, and, and Kevin looked over at me, and he said, Oh, dear Jesus. He said, I must be dying. The pastor's here today. He said, Is there something, Gina, that you haven't told me? The pastor's here. So anyway, the point I'm making is here's Joshua, and he's talking to the high priest. The, the water's in flood stage. It's overflowing like crazy, and Joshua says, hey, okay, you need to get in the water. And so they move in, and then the, the waters uh, spread open, and they walk through on dry land. Uh, scholars say that there were anywhere between 2 million to 4 million people in Israel at that particular time. So that's a lot of people, number one, to go over uh, through a riverbed. And if it had been even the least bit muddy, how many of you know, they would have been bogging down for a long time. I, I, I tried to look it up on the Internet today. The Internet doesn't know everything, by the way. But I was interested in how many people had gathered and walked across the new bridge in downtown Louisville on the day that they opened it. Uh, I, I remember seeing pictures of it, and there were a lot of people uh, the only number that I could ever get was somewhere in the neighborhood of about 10,000 people that walked across that bridge on that day. Uh, it may have been more, it may have been less, but the, the one article that actually put a number out there said it was about 10,000 people. Well, that's a lot of people, you know? That, that's a ton of people. But now think in terms of 2 million people or possibly as many as 4 million. And some scholars even say that that only takes into consideration the men and their wife, and it doesn't take into consideration that in those days men had more than one wife. Sometimes men had two wives or three wives, not counting their concubines. I don't know what in the world they'd do with that many women, but, but they had them in those days. And then, and then there were the children. Nobody even, you know, nobody even talks about the children. 
So, I mean, when you start adding all this up, it could, it could really get it to be a large number of people. So how many of you know this did not happen in 10 minutes? I mean, it wasn't like open the, open the, and dry it up and here, okay, we're done. Okay, God, we're done. This took some time and they walked through, but it was complete. So all the people had crossed over. Now, can you imagine what was in their mind once they crossed over? You know, probably if they were like me, they probably thought something like this. Well, thank God that's over with. Now we can get on to the good stuff. You know, now we can rest a little while. We can sit down. We can, we can barbecue some chicken on the grill, you know, whatever. We can, we can take a break here and everything's going to be all right. But how many of you know that the promised land is not all, all roses? I mean, it's, it's not just one glorious vacation time. In fact, for Israel, it was a place of further battle. But most of all, it was a place now where they had to trust God like they had never trusted him before. You remember last week or maybe the week before we talked about how that prior to that, all they had to do was walk outside their tent every morning and manna was there. And they just picked it up, ate it, and then the next morning it was provided again. But now they weren't getting manna any longer. They were having to plant crops. They had to take supplies with them that would be sufficient to get them through until they could either uh, take some spoils in battle or grow crops of their own. It was a place of trust. They knew that they had to trust God with everything they had because, listen, the challenges only got bigger in the promised land. But if the challenges get bigger, then guess what? So do the blessings. The bigger the challenge, the bigger the blessings. God knows that if you have a big challenge ahead of you, you need big blessings. You need a lot of resources in order to make it happen. Now, once we get over, how, if you're like me, you want to just rush to the blessings. You just want to rush and keep going. Once you get the momentum going, you just want to keep on popping it off because, hey, we just had a great victory. We just walked into this raging river and God answered and it rolled back and we walked through on dry ground and now we're over and it's rolled back and everything's good. Let's just keep on. Let's go right now and beat everybody that we need to beat. But you know what happened next? God just told him to sit still. Just, just stay here until I tell you to move. It's not time for you to fight now. It's time for you to just stay here and wait on me. I hate stuff like that. I mean, I do. I hate to wait. I do not like to wait. I don't even like to be in a drive-thru and them ask me to repeat my order. It just irritates the fire out of me. I mean, they're paying them minimum wage to listen. That's all they got to do is just listen to what I'm saying. And if they could hear it the first time, I wouldn't have to wait at all. Am I right about that? I don't like to wait. I don't know if you've noticed that. But you know what I've discovered through the years about God? He's not in a hurry. God's not in a hurry. And he knows, listen to this, he knows that beyond doing something, we must be something for him as well. It's not just about the doing, but it's about the being. How many of you know God wants you to be someone special? It's not just about what we do, but it's about what we are becoming in the process. It's the maturity level. And sometimes it is the waiting. Sometimes it is the trusting 
that causes us to grow up and mature in him in a way that we could have never done had we just went from victory to victory to victory to victory to victory and never slowed down and really, really drank it all in and really analyzed all that God had done. I was telling my wife today, and we, we both took a pack just before we came over here. We said, okay, we're going to get a good attitude again, and we're going we're gonna to start talking good things and positive things and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I've been working with several contractors lately the last few days, and we've been trying to talk about some things that we need to do in our physical plant here. The parking lot needs some attention. We, we got some windows that need to be replaced. We got some other things, and and it just it just seems like that every time we find something that needs to be fixed, we find two other things that need to be fixed. I don't know if you if you've ever experienced that that or not, but but we were we were looking at some windows, and I walked by these windows over here, and all the caulk is falling out, and and I don't I don't even know how the windows are staying in some of them because the caulk is all all out, and I'm. And, and, you know, and, and just because I am who I am and I, I'm not completely mature and perfected yet, I, I told her, I said, we've been here five and a half years. And I said, man, we have done, I don't know how much stuff that we've done to this property. And I said, it still, it still feels like some days that we haven't done a thing. I said, you are walking around, we got stairs in the back building that, that are half treaded and half not treaded we got draw drywall back there that's got needs to be replaced and we just replaced drywall and painted it and made it look nice and all that and I'm not complaining I'm really not I'm just saying that life can throw you these curveballs at times and if you're not possible or if you're not careful we can get so focused on the waiting and the and the time and 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 having to get the money and the resources and all that and you know, we can get so focused on that but we forget that God just put the river on its on its sides and let us walk through on dry land and we forget the good things that God has done if we're not careful and, and we have to, for, I say, force ourselves. In some cases, we really do. We just have to take our thoughts captive and hold them and say, I'm not going to let you think that way. I know that it's natural for you to think that way, but it's not spiritual for you to think that way. It may be natural for you to talk that way, but it's not spiritual for you. And, and I'm not interested in being natural. I'm interested in being spiritual. Amen. So they get over to the other side and they find themselves having to battle. They find themselves having to wait. They find themselves having to pray and get the will of God. They, pray, they find themselves having to do all these things rather than just move with the momentum. And then he says, take for yourselves 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan from the place where the priest stood firm. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because Doug preached very adequately this part of the, the message tonight. The whole point was is that these stones, which were in fact large enough that they had to carry them on their shoulders. In fact, some scholars believe that the reference here was that they built some kind of, uh, of 
gadget where they would put it on their shoulders and then another guy up in front with it on his shoulders and the stones were so big that one person could not carry it alone and so some some others would help the leader of the tribe by getting it on their shoulders as well. Now we don't know. I wasn't there, but some scholars believe that that's the case. But however big they were, they were bringing them out on their shoulders so that they could establish this memorial so that when the children said, what do these stones mean, then they, the people of God could say, oh, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you about a time when God spread these waters back and we were able to walk through on dry ground. It gave them an opportunity not just to testify but to pass the faith along to their children as they came along. He said, so that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come. Uh, I, I, the, the writer of this book made this statement and I really liked it. He said, often... The faith of our children is weak because they have never been told how great God is and how real his working is in our lives. You know, I, I think about that sometimes and our children don't need to accidentally hear about the goodness of God. We need to be intentionally implanting in their minds how good God is and all that God has done for us. It's not uncommon for me to tell my kids. In fact, they probably get tired of, of me saying things like this. One of them's in their 30s, and, and Aaron, is Aaron 30 yet? She just turned, no, she's 29. I think, I'm not sure. I'll, I'll, I'll edit that out of the video. But anyway, they're, they're old enough, you know, that they, they're adults. But every now and then they'll come and they'll, they'll say, well, you know, we had this situation happen. We're a little tight on money and we're, you know, having to work some overtime to get this or whatever. And, and a nine out of ten times I'll say, you know, the scripture says that if you'll be faithful in your tithing and your giving, that you can put this problem in God's hands and he will find a way to solve it for you. And they already know that. And they already tithe and they already give and they already do that. But I just take every opportunity that I can to make sure that they understand that that's the right activity. And that if they do that kind of thing, they have access to boldly go before the throne of grace and obtain mercy and grace to help in the time of need. Because they've, they've paid the price. They've been taught about the great things that God has done. That story that Doug told... Uh, you know, I, I'm a preacher's kid. I don't know anything other than, uh, pre, you know, being in a preacher's home. We were talking one day about owning our own home. We own a home in Tennessee that we've never lived in. It's our home. We've never lived in it. Not, not one day. We spent the night there a few times, but we've never lived in it. And we've talked about how that, boy, wouldn't it be cool to have our own home? To be able to live in a home that we own. And if we want to paint the walls purple, we can do it because it's not the parsonage, you know. We had a lady one time come and, and tell us, say, you know, that is a church parsonage. Yes, I know it is. Well, you know, the blinds look best from the road when they're at this height on the window. Thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. I, I don't know anything any different than living in a, in a church parsonage. And, and I'm sure that Doug and I could tell you some stories that would melt wax. I'm pretty sure of it. It's just, you know, it, it's, it's just the way that it is. But with all those stories, 
Boy, I could tell you story after story after story that sounds just like his. God taking care of his people, not just preachers and not just preachers' wives, but God's people as they launch out in faith and say, God, if this is what you've called me to do, I'm going to do it. And then we got to testify and pass that on to our kids so that they know how good God is. And so then, but now here's something that happened that you may have missed. They, they take these stones out of the water and they're going to use those stones. They haven't built an altar yet. They're going to build it in Gilgal later on. But they put another altar in the water. Joshua establishes 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan is what the scripture says. So while the waters are rolled back, while they're still in the riverbed, they've already taken stones out of the river to the bank so that they can have a memorial built. In the midst of the Jordan, in the bank, Joshua sets up and establishes this memorial in the riverbed. Now, and we're going to get to this in just a few moments, but when they pass through and everyone's out, the water returns back to its natural state. What happened to those stones? Well, they were underwater. You couldn't see them with the natural eye. They were covered by the floodwaters. You couldn't see them. They were there, but you could not see them with the natural eye. The only time, and historians will say, that there are times when the Jordan, it, the Jordan River gets very low there during drought season. And so during drought season, as the water level grow, uh, goes down and recedes, guess what you're able to see? The stones that were established inside the riverbed. The stones they took outside of the riverbed, they're going to take those to Gilgal, which is, which is not at the point of crossing. So if somebody comes years later to the place where the crossing is, they have no idea of what might have taken place here historically because they don't see anything except during drought season. And when drought season comes and the water recedes, they are able to see these stones that were placed there by Joshua. Now, what's the spiritual significance of that? It's twofold. Number one, there are always things happening in the unseen that are testifying to the faithfulness of God. You might not on an ordinary day be able to see those stones that are under that water, but they're there nonetheless. It's like I was preaching to you Sunday. Some of the greatest work that Jesus did was on Saturday. It's just that nobody knew what he was doing. Now, they thought his body was in the tomb, and his body was in the tomb, but his soul wasn't there. He wasn't there. He was taking the, 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 and breaking the bondage of Hades and setting free the captives from those who had been held in captivity for many, many years. And Jesus went down there and said, you can't hold them any longer. You have no authority over them because my resurrection means that I have power over death, hell, and the grave. 
And so you're going to have to release them and let them go. Nobody knew that was going on until it is revealed to us through Scripture. Saturday was the day of the unseen spiritual realm that was taking place, but it was powerful nonetheless. Everybody knows what happened on Sunday. Everybody knows how powerful that was. That they were able to see it with their eyes. We'll talk about that some Sunday. So one of the things here is that God is always doing something even if it cannot be seen at the time. His testimony is there. And so, and then the second thing that we learn from this is, is that during the drought seasons is when we most need to see the historical record of what God has already done in the past. When, when things are tough, you need to be reminded of what God did. And so if they're walking down the riverbank and it's in drought season and the water has receded and they look out there at that spot and see these stones that have been erected by, by Joshua in the riverbed, then they were able to say, hey, what are those rocks out there? What are those stones? What does that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's where God rolled the waters back and allowed his people to walk out of captivity into the promised land, and those still stand as a memorial to what God has done. I, I dare say that many of you have memorials in your life, things that trigger Thoughts of gratitude and thanksgiving in your life. I've got a little thing in my office. It's, it's just a little brass thing that my dad had, and, and it's a bookmarker. And, and I, don't, I don't know how to describe it. It's, just, it's only about that big. It's just got a little circle on the top, and it has my dad's initials on it, WRB. I didn't keep a lot of stuff that he has, but I always saw him using that when he was reading a book or reading scripture. He would use that, and to mark it, instead of putting something in there, he would meticulously thread that little thing down on there, and when the book was closed, you could see the little round thing at the top with his initials on it. I still have that. It's in my office. I keep it. And every time that I look at it and see it, it's not that I worship my dad, but I'm reminded of how good God was to my dad. My dad wasn't raised in church as a young man. He knew very little. He went and fought in World War II, and when he came back, he saw mom in a revival service. I told you that recently through a window that was open and said, she's good looking, I'm going to date her, and went in to see if he could meet her and wound up getting saved. Wound up getting saved. And, and, and so, you know, I, I, all these stories come flooding back to me when I think about uh, the goodness of God. And I think if my dad hadn't gotten saved and my mom wasn't saved and spirit-filled believers, where might I be today? Amen. You know, and so, and so it's a memorial. It's a mo memorial for what God has done. Now, verses 10 through 18. Let's look at that. It says, for the priest bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished to the, that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over the ark of the Lord and the priest passed over before the people. And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them. About 40,000 
ready for war, passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. And on that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all of Israel. And they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And when the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks just as before. Now, there, there, there's a couple of things I want to get to uh, here. That the priests were not able to come up out of the water until all the people passed. Now think about that for, for a minute. Having to stand there in the water, uh, protecting the, the covenant, uh, Ark of the Covenant, and they're standing there. They have to stand there the whole time until the whole people are able to pass by. It's kind of like Bill Dietz here on Sunday mornings who stays and locks up and turns everything off. And on Sunday morning, and most of you have probably already left and are already eating fried chicken somewhere down in town. But there are people in this church that once they get here, we can't get them to leave. It's, it's like we almost have to pay them money to leave. It's like your church has been over a half hour and they're still here visiting with one another. Now that's a good thing. But Bill, he starts flipping the lights on and off, flipping them on, flipping them on, flipping them on. He'll start banging things together. You know, it's like, come on, move, move along. If you want to visit, go on down to the restaurant and visit, but just get on out of here because I've got things I need to do. Can you imagine those priests standing there where at least two million people are passing through and they have to stand there all of that time until they get through? I, I don't know about this, but I'd say their feet were hurting. I, I don't know. But then when everybody got through, he says to them, you can come up now because that part of this is finished. And then, and then he talks about the, the tribes of Reuben and Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh. If you'll remember, they agreed to stay on the other side of the Jordan. But, but they were required to send their warriors ahead until all the battles were complete. And so they had to come over on dry ground too, although there were some others that stayed back at, in the homeland until the warfare was over. So that's the reference to them. And then it says, on that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of Israel. So in other words, they see that Joshua now has the anointing of God upon him, the calling of God upon him. They know that and they're willing to follow him. And, and so God begins to exalt him in the eyes of the people because now he has a success under his belt. He, he has a, a spiritual notch in his, in his uh, belt, if you will, because God has used him, and now they, they feel like, okay, here's a man of God we can trust, we can follow his leadership, and we're ready to go. So God begins, and I like the fact that he just now is beginning to exalt him, which means to me there's much more on the way. There's much more coming. 
God says, I'm going to begin to exalt you. And on this day, he begins to exalt Joshua. But God's not finished yet. By the time that he's done, Joshua is going to be exalted and exalted and exalted and exalted. But listen, not so that he can get his own television show on TBN. That's not the reason. It's so that he can have, he can have integrity among the people and they can see that this man is greatly used of God because we see the evidence of it. And so now we can throw our support behind what God is saying to us through him. It was never about Joshua. It was about fulfilling God's will for the nation of Israel. God was just using Joshua to be the visionary and to be the leader and to be the commander. And so it's very important on that day, God took the first step in fulfilling his promise to exalt Joshua. Which tells me that sometimes God's promises come to us in steps. Sometimes God, God will do something now in order to bring something else later. And he'll do something else to bring something later. And so we have to continue this process of trusting in God as he leads us, realizing that this thing is a journey. We're never going to arrive. We're never going to get to a place where we don't need any more of God, where we don't need any more of his knowledge. We don't need any more of his wisdom. You're never going to get there. Every step that you take is the step that God is giving into your hands. That's what he promised. And then I want you to notice that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. Now, we don't like this. I, I, I don't like this. Because the reality is, is that once God has established a miraculous happening in our lives, we have to, we have to continue to live out life in the natural realm. Now, we still have spiritual tools, but things go back to normal. I, I you know, I, I, I can make people mad sometimes. I've been Pentecostal all of my life, and I, and I know what it is to go to church. Man, Sunday night at our church. Now, Sunday morning, we tried to stay dignified. You know what I mean? Back in the day, we had to wear suits and ties and all that. You had to do that. So you stayed a little bit dignified, all, dignified although every now and then a pastor would reach up and loosen his tie. And when he loosened his tie and undid that button, buddy, you know, we, he's getting ready to do some preaching now. He's going to lay it. But we stay dignified. Sunday night, all that's out the window, man. You never invite a friend to church on Sunday night in the church where I grew up because all heaven was going to break loose. I mean, if there was going to be shouting and helicopter dancing and all that kind of stuff, it was going to happen on Sunday night. You could, you could pretty well bank on it. But here's what I've discovered. And, and you can call me a person of low faith or no faith or whatever, but I think I'm right on target with this. I don't care how much you shout. I don't care how much you spit. And I don't care how much you sling and dance and fall out. I don't care how many drop cloths they put on you. I, it doesn't matter. If, if when you get up off the floor, if you keep doing things the way that you've always been doing things, you're going to need somebody to throw you in the floor again next week because you're going to be in the same boat that you were in before because you're just living on the feeling or the emotion of the moment. 
And here they are, two million people just crossed over on dry ground. God has done this miraculous thing. And, and now things go back to normal. They turn around and look and the water goes back to normal. The scripture even goes so far as to say that it is still during the flood season and it is overflowing the banks. And so it goes back to normal. So what we have to learn how to do is deal with ordinary circumstances with extraordinary power. Ordinary circumstances with extraordinary ability that only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because things are going to be normal. Let me tell you something. It will be very rare if you had a fight with your spouse on the way over here. And you didn't get it resolved before you came in here. You know, if you came up here for prayer and we threw you down in the floor, you could get up, get back in the car with the same spouse and go back to the same house, same house and the same spouse. I'm a poet and don't know it, but my feet show it. They're Longfellers. How many of you ever heard that one? If you don't apologize... And if you don't do something different than what caused you to get in a fight when you were on your way to church, guess what? You're going to fight some more. In fact, you won't even be in a different fight. It'll just be round two. You've got to do something different. And so when, when our circumstances, and, and, and if you're like me, here's the way that I typically respond. You know, I... I Man, I pray, I pray, I pray. And then I see, you know, a movement in a positive direction. And say, oh, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Breakthroughs on the way. I know it's here. It's just around the corner. Hallelujah. Praise God. Glory, glory, glory. Speak in tongues a little bit. I'm good. I'm feeling good. And then the same stuff happens. And it makes me want to say, here we go again. Here we go again. I can always tell when the church is getting ready to move to another level because all kinds of nonsense breaks out. I mean, it's like a rash on a baby's behind. You just let God bring you to the edge of the water and say, boy, tomorrow you're going to be on that side. And you're going to get from here to there on dry land. And somebody will say, I don't like this, and I don't like that, and I'm upset about this, and I'm upset about that. And I, I really, I just want to lay hands on them and pray without the anointing. <laughs> and you can always tell because the devil knows, the devil knows that a spirit of disunity will always thwart the plan of God. That's the reason the psalmist said how, how good and how pleasant it is when the brethren dwell together in unity. Because when there is unity, it's like a river flowing down from Mount Hermon. And it brings nutrients to, to, to the valley. And, and what he's saying is, is that, man, when you're in a spirit of unity, wonderful things can happen. And fruit begins to come forth. And harvest becomes possible because the body of Christ is working together in unity and in harmony. So let me just tell you, and, I, and, I, and then I've got to quit. I don't think I can get to the rest of it tonight. 
But listen, you need to understand that after this great move of the Holy Spirit, or after the Lord has whispered something into your ear, things are going to go back to normal. At the river's going to come back down. It's going to, it's going to touch again. It's going to overflow the banks again. So what has to change then? This is common sense. This is elementary. It really is. Everybody should have the answer to this. If the river's not going to change, if the river's not going to change course, and if the river's going to still stay out of its bank, if, if the river's still going to act foolish, then something has to change. The river's not going to change. So guess who is? I'm going to change. I'm going to change in my approach and my mentality about the river and the circumstance that I'm facing is going to change because I know that that's not going to change, but I can change. And then if I get into a place where I need the supernatural power of God, then it'll be there. God will give it. Now, this, this parting of the water was just the very beginning of what God was going to do for them. I mean, we haven't even gotten to Jericho yet where walls fall, fall down. We haven't even gotten to some of those places yet in Joshua. But I'm telling you, this is just the tip of the iceberg. But they had to wrap their mind around the fact that we're living this faith walk, this spirit life. In a natural realm where ordinary occurrences take place. But what lifts us above those things is the extraordinary power of God that works through the faith of his people. Amen. Praise the Lord. Read the rest of the chapter and, and, and you'll get it. And uh, I know the Lord can teach you as good as I can. Amen. Father, thank you.